As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. One thing we do know. Yeah, exactly. But nobody knows. Bill Dudley might know. He joins us now, the former New York Fed president and Bloomberg opinion columnist. Bill, let's go there. Goldman says pause. Pause because of stress in the banking system. Bill, your best guess right now, what would it be? I think it depends on where we are on Wednesday. I think we know they're not going to raise 50. We think, I think we know they're not going to cut rates. The real question is zero or 25. Uh, the case for zero is do no harm. Uh, we know that the banking system's under stress. So why would you continue to raise rates uh, when the banking system's under stress? The case for 25 basis points is to say, look, we still have an inflation problem. Uh, we can do both. We can use our liquidity facilities to shore up the confidence in the banking system, and we use monetary policy to uh, bring down inflation. Uh, you know, if I had, to, if I had, if I was sitting there, I guess I would probably recommend just taking a pause. But you have to do it in a way that doesn't alarm people. Uh, one of the problems of pausing is people are going to say, "Geez, why is the Fed pausing? Things must be worse in the banking system than we think." I think this is a very different situation than the great financial crisis in the sense that. The banks, this is a question of confidence in banks due to uninsured deposits and mark-to-market losses. It's not about the economy that's collapsing. In the last recession, during the great financial crisis, we were in recession beginning in December 2007. We're not in recession now. The economy is actually doing pretty well. And the banks that we're talking about that are under stress in the United States, very small share of the total banking system. So I think it's important to recognize that this isn't the great financial crisis all over again. It's a lack of confidence in banks because especially those banks with a high proportion of uninsured depositors and mark-to-market losses on their in their portfolios. All that said, Bill, do you still think that this Fed should bring a monetary policy, should bring their terminal rate to 6% or possibly above that based on the inflationary pressures if there is this ongoing tightening that people expect from smaller and mid-sized banks? That's really the $64,000 question. How much is this stress that we're seeing today going to result in tighter credit conditions that are going to change the trajectory of economic growth? Uh, I don't think the problem is uh, the credit conditions right now. I think the problem is uh, mark-to-market losses in the portfolio and uninsured deposits. It's very different than the great financial crisis when we had this housing boom and bust. And it was the bust that really took down fundamental values in the banking book. Uh, and also damage households uh, enormously because households had used the rise in home prices to pull money out to support their spending. The U.S. economy is fundamentally in better shape today. Household and business balance sheets are strong. 
so this is, I think, more about confidence in the banking system. One reason why we're having more problems this time, though, last time there were big banks that were willing to ride to the rescue and buy uh, the, the banks that were under distress. They're much less willing to do that this time because last time when they did this, they assumed huge legal liabilities that they hadn't anticipated. A second reason why big banks don't want to ride to the rescue this time is if I buy a bank and get bigger, uh, I could be pushed into a higher, uh, what's called a SIFI surcharge bucket, you know, with a higher capital requirement based on my size and complexity, uh, which would make, which would apply to my entire book of business, not just the the, the new part that I just just acquired. So you don't have the, you know, people that come in to you know buy the banks that are under stress like you did last time. Given that you don't see this as a 2008 redux, maybe you don't get the white knights coming in to bail out these banks with an acquisition, as you point out. But a lot of people are writing into me and saying you live under a rock of bearishness and you don't understand the momentum that you're seeing throughout the world and throughout a lot of communities in the United States. Given that there is this sort of momentum, do you think that it's folly for people to be pricing in significant rate cuts, more than 100 basis points of rate cuts from now until the end of next year or until the end of January next year, I should say? You know, that seems very premature to me. I mean, that means that the Fed has basically failed in terms of providing a, a credible liquidity backstop. And I think the Fed can succeed in providing a credible liquidity backstop. In fact, the steps they've already taken, I think, go a long way towards that. You know, I think the Fed, if, if I were sitting at the Federal Reserve right now, I'd be asking myself the question, how can I do more on the liquidity front so I can free up more flexibility on the monetary policy side? Because if we can restore confidence in the banking system, then the Fed can use monetary policy to uh, bring down inflation. Do you live under a rock of bearishness? Is that what someone said <laughs> yeah, to you? People, well, I'm not in that many yeah, words. That's pretty but brutal, that's, that No, is. they say other things, like you're a pessimistic, horrible human who doesn't ever think positive things. But I do. It's just that who's, I worry. Who says that to you? Oh, a lot of people, you know. It's nasty grammar. It's, it's we okay. all love you. It's well, okay. Oh, that's sweet. But it's okay. I'm, I can deal with it because I'm prepared because I'm duly bearish. But I'm not. It's just realistic. It's trying okay. to understand the unknowns. Looking around corners. Exactly. I get it. Thank, Thank you. you. Bill, a couple more <laughs> questions if I can. I got this one over the Bloomberg moments ago. And someone watching wants to know whether you think the gap between Fed funds and bank deposit rates matter here. Has that contributed to the problem? I, I think banks have been slow to raise their deposit rates because they've been awash with deposits. I mean, what, what happened when the Fed was doing quantitative easing was his buying securities and, those, and that cash from those securities purchases was actually flowing into the banking system. So banks have actually been pretty slow to raise their deposit rates. You know, when people look at the mark-to-mark -mark losses on their securities portfolio and their loan book, that has to be offset by the fact that banks are actually doing quite well in terms of the, the, the deposit base. The value of a retail bank network today, branch network today, is much greater than it was when interest rates were at zero. So when you're looking at the banking, you know, asset liability mix, you also have to count the value of those deposits, which is really, really quite high right now. For most banks, net interest margins have actually been expanding. Silicon Valley Bank was a very important exception. Bill, I just want to weigh in as well on the balance sheet. I'd love your thoughts on that. As we know, there's been a rush to use the discount window. The new facility that was opened by the Federal Reserve just last weekend will encourage perhaps more of the same. Can you tell me whether, just because the balance sheet is expanded again, whether that means it's the end of QT? How do you think about these things? I think this is about... Uh, exceptional liquidity lender of last resort provision to support the banking system. I think quantitative tightening, you know, the runoff of the treasury portfolio and the agency mortgage-backed securities portfolio is going to continue unabated. Uh, I, I, I see these tools as very separate and different. So I expect that the quantitative tightening will continue.
Bill, wonderful to get your thoughts, as always. Bill Dandy there, the former New York Fed president and Bloomberg opinion columnist. Joining us now is Max Kenner, Chief Multi-Asset Strategist over at HSBC. Max, I've asked this question a few times in the last 24 hours. It's your turn. Are you feeling more or less confident after that tie-up yesterday? I feel probably more confident. I feel also more confident after uh, what's happened last week. I, I would feel much, much more concerned if indeed when if we had perhaps sentiment and positioning much, much less really downbeat. Now, you know, we've been, I've been listening to your show for the last eight, eight minutes, uh, and, and there's not been a lot of positives yet, right? And I think that's a fair understatement if I say that. And that's the good thing. The good thing is when we look at survey-based sentiment, that's pretty depressed already. If we look at technicals, right? So like relative strength across risk assets, already very depressed. VIX term structure is sort of down to below the 10th percentile already, right? When we look at equity beaters of multi-asset funds, down, right? When we look at put call ratios, not not only in equities, but across the asset classes, sending clear, clear, bearish risk sentiment signals. So the good thing is, right, with all what's been happening, not only in the last 24 hours, but really over the last week is that sentiment has gone and has derated sufficiently really to bearish levels that I'd be very, very careful to throw in the towel on, on constructive views now, right? So we've just put out a note and said, look, we're still holding on to that constructive view because Indeed, the sentiment and positioning really across the board looks much, much more negative now, which is a contrarian positive signal. Max, let's put a bit more specifics around this. Are you saying right now you're going out there and buying European banks to move counter to the zeitgeist that we see out there? Yeah, I think so. I think banks are more and more looking actually attractive. If we look at, you know, if we look at the relative performance perhaps of banks over the broader market, look at uh, the performance of banks over tech, for example, and that is back to the COVID highs, right? That's back to where we were at sort of the dizzy heights in 2020 when, you know, real rates were down uh, to, to almost record, uh, record negative levels. When we look at the broader banks' performance, not only in Europe, but also in, in the U.S., when we look at that against, you know, U.S. Treasury yields, if we look at that against financial conditions in particular, it's priced right now for the second biggest, second sharpest deterioration in financial conditions already, right? So there is an awful lot in the price, particularly from a from a relative perspective already, right? So I wouldn't say, oh, nothing's happened yet. And, you know, there's much, much more deeper pain to come. We're getting pretty close to pretty attractive entry levels, I think. Let's talk monetary policy. Bob Michael sat in that chair yesterday evening from JP Morgan. He said first cut comes in September. Andrew Hollenhorst of City published this morning. He said you'll get a hike at that meeting in a couple of days. He said in the SCP, the projections they offer for the dot plot, the median dot for 23, he thinks 525 to 550. Max, what are you looking for this Wednesday? I think, you know what, John, I think there's one rule right now. Don't overdo things, right? Don't talk too much. Don't change too much. What you read now, right now, particularly from policymakers, is steady hand, steady ship, right? What you really want is basically a 25 basis point hike. I agree with what Lisa said before. Has anyone really looked at the projections from the ECB last week? Not really, right? Because they, they've been only marginally changed, really. That's what you need from the Fed as well, right? You don't need overaction, right? You don't need too much. What I would do is what I'm really waiting for is 
a 25 basis point hike, not too much change, not too much flip-flopping around in projections or opinions or hiking or lowering the dots, but really steady hands, steady ships saying, look, we've managed to contain it so far. We can press ahead with the inflation fight. We don't need to be as aggressive anymore as we've been a couple of months ago. Let's see this through. I think that is, if we think about it and we talk about restoring confidence, the number one rule in, in restoring confidence is steady hand, steady ship. Don't overdo it. Hey, Max, wonderful to get your thoughts, as always, to kick off the week. Max Kettner there of HSBC. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, Myra Rodriguez Valadares, Managing Principal at MRV Associates. Myra, thank you for being on the programme with us. Last weekend, it was Signature. It was SVB. This weekend, it was Credit Suisse. What are you expecting next weekend? Right. Uh, That's really the question. I'm afraid that the regional banks in the US, of course, are still very, very sensitive to this crisis and confidence, frankly. But the the demise of Credit Suisse is very, very different. And uh, unfortunately, I heard some Swiss regulators and government officials blaming the U.S. banking chaos uh, uh, for the Credit Suisse uh, demise. And uh, this one cannot be pinned on the American banking sector. Unfortunately, kleptocrats and crooks have long been banking at Credit Suisse. It has decades-long Uh, unfortunately, history of many, many scandals. So if anything, I would really be worried about those really big banks that have weak operational risk. That's what we really need to be looking at. We just had Bill Dudley, the former uh, president of the New York Federal Reserve, uh, and he was talking about how the one difference now, or one of the main differences now from uh, 20 years ago, is that big banks don't want to acquire other banks so quickly. The litigation risks, the regulatory risks that accompany that are significant and open opaque. What do you make of that in terms of how many provisions had to be put around the UBS acquisition of Credit Suisse and what that means for distress that we're seeing in certain pockets in the U.S.? He's actually right, because the the big banks have a lot of interconnections. There's just a tremendous amount of opacity that investors don't know. And I think that that's what we really should be focusing in the coming days, because right now everybody's trying to go through all the fine print of the memorandum of the UBS memorandum of the takeover Credit Suisse. But imagine all the opaqueness in the banks, especially in Credit Suisse. There is a lot of duplication. There's going to be, unfortunately, thousands of people who will be fired uh, all over the globe because, of course, UBS will get a say as to who gets to say. You have shared 
facilities in terms of liquidity. You also have a lot of systems at both banks, many which are legacy systems. And so UBS is going to have to be combing through this all very, very carefully. Are there hidden liabilities at Credit Suisse that UBS hasn't had a chance to find out? There is no way that they were able to do all this level of in-depth due diligence uh, to be able to do this deal. And so that's really what UBS and any big bank would would be worried about in terms of trying to buy out another one. There are two issues here. There are a lot of issues here, but there's what's going on with Credit Suisse and UBS, and there's what's going on over in the U.S. and some of the regional banks. The interlinkage, perhaps, is a confidence story, but the stories are separate in what is going on and why. And I want to just go to the U.S. story for a second, Myra, and this question of supervision of the Federal Reserve and the role of people to identify problems and adequately prevent against them spiraling out of control. What is your concern level in the inability to do that with Silicon Valley Bank and some of the others that have drawn scrutiny recently? Yes, I'm glad you said the word supervision, because that's really, we need more supervision, not necessarily regulation. However, having said that, if big banks were required to be called systemically important, which is exactly what the Trump law deregulated, then those banks, the size of Silicon Valley, would actually be disclosing more about their liquidity, the composition of their deposits. Uh, And in the U.S., we have a very complex regulatory and supervisory framework. You have the state regulator. So state regulators often do not have the money. They don't have the resources. And they're the ones that are right there on the ground. So the state regulators are the ones that have to be empowered. And the banks should be required to disclose more about their liquidity, their capital, There are other kinds of risks, such as leverage, the concentration. If investors had that information more often than just once a quarter, they would be able to discipline the banks. You cannot count on regulators or rating agencies to discipline the banks. But the banks are opaque and they should really be disclosing a lot more about their concentration and liquidity risks. Myra, bank failures, as you know, go back centuries And I wonder if our biggest problem right now is the fact that banks fail or the fact that seemingly we can't tolerate failure anymore. That's exactly it. You have to let banks fail. The problem, of course, is that the people who are going to get hurt are the junior level employees, the ones that aren't getting the big bonuses, all the restaurants and hotels anywhere Uh, that had any business with those banks are the ones that get hurt. And we're no longer really a capitalist society. We are constantly letting these bank executives uh, socialize the losses. And that's the problem. They should be allowed to fail. There should be clawbacks for bonuses. And you have to discipline rogue uh, professionals at these banks. Otherwise, we're constantly doing this. And it's always the taxpayers that are bailing people out, bailing out the banks, I should say. Uh, and it's it's a problem for all the different kinds of central banks. The Fed now uh, is probably not going to be able to raise rates, but it's not just because of what's going on in the U.S. I mean, do you think that Switzerland right now is good raise rates or the European Central Bank? We have global inflation, but now come all of these problem banks. And so it is really going to be quite a challenge for all of these different central banks, as well, of course, as the bank regulators globally. This is not just an American problem. Myra, let's catch up soon. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Myra Rodriguez, Valadaris there of MRV Associates. 
Leon Cooperman, chairman and CEO of Omega Family Office, joining us now. And Leon, I just want to first start with what's your impression of everything that we've seen over the past, I would say, week, last weekend with what happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and just now with UBS taking over Credit Suisse? I think without being uh, overly simplistic, to me, it's kind of like textbook. We've degenerated into a system of leadership at a crisis. We have a self-induced crisis by irresponsible fiscal monetary policy the last decade. Um, I did not forecast the Silicon Bank issue, but I did have a view that we were heading to a crisis of some kind, and we've seen it. And uh, we're getting a predictable response by government. And so uh, I think it's sad you know, what's going on in the country, but uh, what they're doing is, is what is necessary to be done. They have to preserve the system. So I'm assuming that the Fed goes 25 bips on Wednesday, they're 25 and done. They're going to accept a higher level of inflation and uh, than they would like to accept because of the stress in the financial system. They have to stabilize the treasury market. The volatility of bonds is so great that that's destabilizing the equities. Well, but, I wanna, uh, Leon, I want to pick up on that because we've been talking about that. We've seen unbelievable fluctuations in the basic, most liquid instruments in the world, right? Treasuries. What's the read-through effect of just even that volatility on other risk assets? And, and how much further does it have to take that out in terms of the volatility pressuring equity valuations? That's not my area of expertise, but uh, I would say that this is a response to debt buildup in the country. You know, in 2017, we had $20 trillion of national debt. And today, we're knocking the door of $32 trillion five years later, you know, five or six years later. It's just a growth rate in debt far in excess of the growth rate of the economy, which is going to create issues. You know, who is the buyer? The, buy the banks are not the buyer of bonds anymore. So you're relying upon the kindness of strangers. And uh, they, they're probably not imbued with our financial policy. When they look at the politics of the country, it's also very depressing. You know, we have a country that I think is largely centrist in nature. It's been taken over by two political parties uh, with the radicals, radical right, radical left, uh, ruling the day. We don't need this. Well, Leon, Leon, we're dealing with a situation where the political overlay is raising questions about the debt ceiling debate, and we can get into that, and people are, are trying to figure out what that means uh, economically and, and for the market. Your expertise is in the S&P, in the market, and market calls, and you've been warning about a recession for a long time. You've been saying that this is a self-induced uh, error of monetary policy and woes. And I'm curious, first of all, whether you're getting more optimistic about returns because of the declines that we're seeing and because of perhaps people waking up to the reality of the potential for recession, as you've been saying it? Well, my view has been uh, in the, as follows. I tell the story about the pharaoh. I told this almost a year ago on TV. The pharaoh, excuse me, had a dream. The dream was interpreted by Joseph. It was in the Bible. His dream was we're heading for seven lean years after seven fat years. And that is my view. I think the 4,800 on the S&P will be a high that will stand for quite some time. And then I kind of analogize that to my own career. I got my MBA from Columbia Business School on January 31st of 1967. Had a six-month-old child at the time. Now he's a healthy 56-year-old. Uh, I had no money in the bank. Had a student loan to repay. They were not forgiving student loans. And I couldn't afford a vacation. I went to work the very next day. I joined Goldman Sachs for my 25-year career. 
on February 1st of 67, that that was a thousand and 1982 was a thousand. And so I, I, and, and I made my money picking stocks. I, you know, I'm not selling anything to anybody because I'm a retired money manager and I'm turning 80 years old in a few weeks. But I would say that uh, uh, I think we're in a stock pickers environment. I expect the returns in the S&P to be very pedestrian. I think what's going on in the world is negative for price earnings ratios. And I want to make this point. If the government is looked upon to moderate the downside risk, the government has every right to moderate the upside return. Okay. We This CHIPS Act, you know, I think Intel sits in a balance sheet of $50 billion. They don't need the government to build plants for them. They could do it themselves. I'm, I'm in favor of private sector solutions. And uh, the extent that the, the political system is getting corrupted uh, that's negative for capitalism long term. So, Leon, from your perspective, you have made your career in picking single stocks. Where are you putting your money now, given that you still are investing, if perhaps uh, for yourself and, and for others? Where do you go? Uh, I, I'm like a one-off kind of guy. I'm looking at a couple of these uh, mortgage REITs that are yielding 14 to 16 percent, selling a discount to book value where they're buying back their own stock whenever it's uh, in you cheap. But, you know, th those are one-off. My biggest exposure has been energy, and that's cost me some money this year. I'm generally of the view that uh, um, world travel will come back, which will be a plus for energy demand. China coming out of lockdown will be a plus for energy demand. We're going to no longer deplete the strategic petroleum reserve. We have to rebuild it. Um, and we're not replacing reserves the extent uh, that we are, we should be in terms of where we're producing. Yeah. Well, I have a bunch of oil stocks in my portfolio that have current yields of 5 or 10%, production costs well below current prices. Yeah. They're largely debt-free, and they're positioned to buy back undervalued stock. You know, so my, my favorite is Paramount Resources up in Canada, POU. You know, they, they produce oil for $31 a barrel. They're growing production at 15%. Uh, the stock yields over 5%. Yeah. And they have no debt. Leon, bumping up against the clock, 30 seconds. Do you agree with Elizabeth Warren that there should be insurance for deposits that's more than $250,000 and that banks should have to pay for that? There's very little that Elizabeth Warren says that I agree with. But, uh, you know... Uh, I think we have to do whatever we have to do to stabilize the system, and we'll do it. But I think I'm focused on the long-term implications of what they're doing. So I think that, uh, yes, they should do whatever they got to do to stabilize the system. It's a damn shame that we have to do what we're doing, that we not should have been in this problem. You know, uh, yeah. Mr. Powell, uh, you know, the Fed head, said that uh, the stock market wasn't overvalued. This is a few years ago because of where interest rates were. He never bothered telling people interest rates didn't belong where they were. Leon Cooperman, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Leon Cooperman of Omega Family Office. We really, really appreciate your time. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Michael Arrighetti joins us now, co-founder and CEO at Eris Management. Michael, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. I think we need to talk about speed, just how quickly this is moving. What do you make of it all? I think you hit on a big uh, challenge in today's market environment relative to past cycles. I think with the, the speed with which money can move through the system, the speed with which information is coming at us, it's, it's getting harder and harder to distill the signal through the noise. So we're, t- we're talking with uh, you, Michael, at a time when people are wondering who will take over some of the institutions that are seeing some distress, who will come to the rescue. And we were talking with Bill Dudley about how big banks learned their lesson during the financial crisis and are concerned about litigation risks. From your vantage point, given that Aries oversees $352 billion of assets, including more than $200 billion of credit, what's your view on that? Where is your role? It's interesting. I think the private credit markets have been playing a little bit of a stabilizing role here over the last couple of weeks and, and, and months uh, as liquidity in the traded markets is not what it used to be. I think folks like Aries are coming in and, and really providing liquidity in, in certain markets where liquidity has gotten thin. Uh, one thing I think about now is one of the larger private credit managers is we don't know exactly how this all will unfold, but I can tell you one thing, we will see more regulation of banks, both mid-sized and large. We will likely see a change to bank capital regulatory framework here in the U.S. and abroad. And that capital contraction will make it ever more important that private credit plays a role in funding the real economy. So at what point, and I want to go to the funding the real economy in a second, but just in terms of the here and now, is Aries going in and picking up bank bonds? Is Aries coming in and discussing how to finance uh, banks that perhaps are threatened with deposit outflows? I, mean, I, I remind you, Lisa, we, we play strictly in the private market. So we do have certain pockets of capital within our opportunistic credit and distressed businesses that will dabble in the public market opportunity that gets created here. But the opportunity set for, for Aries and those that look like us really is to come in and be a liquidity provider to the small companies that may be challenged to get liquidity from mid-sized and regional banks. And it could be as a real good counterparty to the bank on reg cap trades as they try to revisit uh, the liquidity on their own balance sheet. You talked about the broader uh, capital sphere that we're watching and this concern about whether commercial real estate operators as well as individuals and small businesses can get the loans that regional banks used to provide to them. Michael, private credit might step in, but how much more expensive will it be to get it from a private equity company or a private debt firm than from a regional bank? Look, I think historically the private credit markets have been more expensive. Uh, that's largely because they tend to provide a level of creativity or innovation, or frankly, more leverage or structural flexibility than a bank solution could. So I think the market is pretty well attuned to a higher cost of capital. I think you raise an important point though here is what we're dealing with now is liquidity and duration, not credit. And we're already seeing the impact that cost of capital is having as rates are moving up so quickly. 
uh, I think we first need to get to a point where the equity valuation uh, environment adjusts to the new reality so that people can actually afford a higher cost of capital if that's where this takes us. Michael, one issue that's come up repeatedly over the last week is this idea that ultimately now we'll end up with tighter lending standards, tighter financial conditions. I think a lot of people are lining up to give us the stats about how dependent certain parts of this economy are on the financing from small and medium-sized banks. We're thinking about real estate a whole lot more. Michael, how are you thinking about the ripples from what's developed in the last couple of weeks from these banks and what regionals are going through and what it means for an asset class that I imagine you're exposed to? Look, I think it, it could be very challenging. I think that the, the Fed is doing everything it's supposed to do to step in and provide confidence. Uh, I was pleased to see uh, the larger banks in the market step in to provide support to First Republic. Uh, I think at the end of the day, again, this is duration, liquidity, and confidence, not credit. So I, I would hope that folks calm down again, see the, the signal through the noise and, and get back to lending. But it is a real risk. Uh, obviously, to the extent that people continue to lose confidence, uh, capital leaves that part of the banking sector, and it is going to make it harder for people to access capital for sure. It feels like a year ago, but last week, Larry Fink of BlackRock said that there are a number of shoes that are going to drop. First, it was Silicon Valley Bank. Then it was other smaller and medium-sized banks. And next, it would be the private credit and private equity and venture capital markets that wouldn't get that credit. Do you agree with that? Uh, I think one thing that is probably most misunderstood about the private markets, which is why, you know, it's always been this view that they're the canary in the coal mine. And yet every time we have a crisis or a mini crisis, private markets tend to emerge fairly unscathed. And I think the big difference that folks don't really appreciate is one, most private credit assets are held unlevered. Uh, to the extent they're levered, they're modestly leveraged with match duration and match match funding, uh, juxtapose that with a bank that is 10 to 15 times levered, and you get obviously a much different outcome in markets like this. Similarly, on the equity side, they are operating out of funds with 10 to 12-year uh, life cycles. And so most private owners of assets that are institutionally backed are neither forced sellers or forced buyers in any market, and that provides a level of stability that I think people may underappreciate when we go through markets like the one we're in right now. That's a constructive point. Michael, got to leave it there. It's wonderful to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Michael Arrogetti there of Aries Management. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.